This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, welcome. This is our eighth season finale of Script to Screen. We'll be back in October. Uh, today is also a, a special day. We're losing three of our producer, directors, uh, and writers of Script to Screen. Alex Tritt, who's on camera right now, on me. Uh, Jamie Misanko and Janelle Axon are in the booth right now directing the show. Uh, they really, just let you know, Script to Screen is really done by the students. They help research, write the questions, get involved behind the cameras, the interns here. So we want to congratulate them for a great year, and we're going to miss all of you. But <laughs> today we thought, what better way to end the year with uh, Star Trek, the 10th anniversary. Uh, in the 1960s, Gene Roddenberry created a show that was trying to tackle serious social issues, uh, racism, sexism, war, poverty, but in a rare thing called an optimistic future. Um, and in, so it created a very diehard fan base. I don't know about you, but I was at the Star Trek convention since I was a child. Uh, they're rabid fans. They even in 1976 demanded that NASA change the first space shuttle uh, name to the Enterprise. Uh, of course, these fans were a little bit temperamental about trying to recast the show, so it's, a, it's an amazing job that they did making the movie. So we would love to find out how they pulled off and all the trials and tribulations of making a show like this. So let's please welcome to the stage the editor of Star Trek, Marianne Brandon. So 10 years, so what was it like seeing with an audience again after? Oh, yeah, it was really nice to see on the big screen. And uh, yeah, I forgot. (laughs) It was really fun. It's a really fun film. It's very fast paced. Um, It's like never stops. (laughs) So let's go back to, you know, before the movie. Uh, What was your initial reaction when you read the script? Well, I was a Star Trek fan growing up, so I was already, you know, very familiar with the characters. And when J.J. Abrams approached me and said we were going to do Star Trek, um, he's more of a Star Wars fan. So I was super surprised by that. But he had this deal with Paramount and Paramount. And then Brian Burke, his producer, had this idea to resurrect the show. And he was friends with Leonard Nimoy, and it all just came together. And Bob Orsi and Alex Kurtzman and Damon Lindelof were all old friends of mine. Alex and Bob had written Alias, and Damon had written Lost. So I had already been working with them for... And Alex and Bob had also written Mission Impossible 3, which we had just previously done. So... Um, I had known them for so long and worked with them on scripts for so long. It was kind of like a family get-together, and the script evolved as we... There was never like a full script before we started. It just kind of evolved along the way. And it's really funny watching now. I remember all the scenes that were shot that are not in and manipulations we did to try and um, fill those holes. And Because there was the whole subplot where... Nero's, after uh, George Kirk gets killed, there's a gap of 25 years. And in that gap, at the end of 
George getting killed, the um, Klingons used to show up and they take Nero and all the Romulans to a prison planet. And they're on the prison planet for 25 years being enslaved by the, waiting for the elder Spock to come through because they've calculated when he's, how long it's gonna take. And, um, and it was such a convoluted <laughs> plot that, um, and we had it in the film for the longest time. And it's just fun to watch the film now and see, oh yeah, there was that whole plot. So when Uhura says, I don't even know if you noticed, but she says, I heard this um, signal from a distant Klingon prison planet. It has to do with all, that's the breakout, <laughs> that's the Romulan breakout, um, which goes unexplained, but that's fine. Um, it's interesting because it's one of our questions. So when you see something like that in the edit room, what is it that, is it, it throws the pace off when you have something that's added, or is it just something that takes the balance away from the main characters? Yeah, it's all those things, you know. It's like, what story are you telling? And it's interesting, with because this is an origin film, even though it's a well-established um, story, Star Trek, we had to, the task was to reintroduce these characters, which I think this film actually does really well, because you can spend a lot of time introducing five or six characters and giving them their due, but each one of them had a really simple introduction. And I love the way JJ and the writers um, made it, always made it a kind of funny, organic introduction. Like when Sulu can't get the, um, uh, the Enterprise out of gear and he just <laughs> turns around and goes, I'm Hirkara Sulu, you know, and, and then it just, um, it's just, it, so having this other plot in the middle, the, the biggest problem with this film, as I recall now, was the timeline. So having the 25 years in the middle was really difficult because you really wanted to get to your main characters, but you had this big gap. And then it had, you had this subplot like Nero waiting to break out and the Klingons and the Klingons hate the Romulans. And they, so they had a thing and um, it just didn't matter in the end. <laughs> there was also, I remember, and I probably, I'm sure it's on the out, um, you know, on the DVD collection. There was Kirk's birth. There was also an entire scene of Spock's birth in the original um, film. And that was in and out for the longest time. And we finally decided to take it out because um, his birth was just not dramatic the way Kirk's was, and, um, and the truth was, it was Kirk's, it's Kirk's story until, um, it really is Kirk's story, basically, and how he became captain. Yeah, I find it interesting, the interview was opening because um, you have a fast-paced action sequence on the USS Kelvin, um, but the crux of the scene lines, uh, lies with you know, George Kirk's sacrifice. How do you, like in the editing or in the process, how do you cut through all this, almost like the special effects noise, I like to call it, to get to the human part of the story? Because it could have overshadowed it. Oh, you, you take all the sound out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, um, that was a good, that's a great question because that was a problem. There's all this stuff going on and the human story is, you know, are you going to feel emotional? But how can you be feeling emotional for this guy who's making a sacrifice when... Um, this, all this noise is happening and there's a baby being born and people are screaming and she's screaming because the baby's being born and other people are screaming. And 
it took a long time and we danced around it for a while and then we decided we we just I just tried this version and I was like what if it just becomes this like you know not um you know just kind of a feeling more than a like how can we get to the feeling and that's how we got to like taking all the sound out and we went to Michael Giacchino who's an incredibly talented composer as you know and um he was like yeah give me a chance you know and he composed this beautiful um music that just brought it to life and I think I had I can't remember now it was so long ago but I had a piece of music in there that was just like sold the idea so um we ended up going for it and there were all these like little things we had it's so funny looking at it now because it's like how are we gonna tell the story that autopilot is isn't working and that's why he has to make the decision to stay and you know the end of the day we were just like let's put a voice in that says autopilot isn't working (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well it's interesting because you know people who know those series the shatner nimoy relationship on screen off screen developed for 40 years Mm -hmm. and you really had four minutes to set up kirk and spock yeah uh so (laughs) we had the privilege of having that Still, it's it just, uh, I also found it kind of interesting because I saw in editing the Spock of Horror. Spock has this great moment of having a Vulcan sass mm-hmm. by telling off the Academy, cutting immediately to horror, going to the bar. Was that something you think consciously in every saw his way to introduce Spock into horror and her romance with him and kind of get yeah, those I mean, characters? That's, yeah, that's J.J. Abrams' kind of style, putting that kind of, you know, um, juxtaposition of stuff together and wanting it to gel and I think you know I'd worked with him on Alias for you know the four years and which was a very difficult show to do because it was had such outrageous plots and um and there was that show also sort of helped me figure this out because that show was we were always like had footage we had to clear away to get to what eventually could be a story that, you know, somebody could understand. And even at best, there were episodes you can't possibly understand. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, the casting was perfect, which, as you know, I made the comment to the fans, the fans, you know, I was too, was like, you can't, re- you can't replace Shatner. Oh, yeah, it was a big and deal. every character, actor, I thought was perfect. Like, they got it. Was there any concern, when, was there a decision, like, how we pay homage to the original series, how much of the new things that we do? Was there any kind of back and forth? Oh, uh, tons of it. I remember when we first um, had our first cut, I had put in, I had asked my assistant to get all the TV sounds, you know, the iconic screen, ping, the medical bay, um, and I started putting them in, and JJ came into my room, and he's like, you can't use those. That's, you know, we have to modernize. And, you know, I was like, okay, well, I thought I'd, you know, give it a shot, because Quite honestly, because I was a fan of Star Trek as a child, I those sounds, you know, the minute you heard that ping on the screen, you go, oh, I'm on the bridge. And the minute you heard the medical bay, you're like, oh, I'm in the medical bay. Like, you didn't even need to see anything. You could just hear it and know. Or the sound of the um, uh, transporter room. And um, we went around in a giant circle, uh, and ended up using those iconic sounds because, uh, you know, I wasn't the only one at the end of the day who came back and was like, 
oh no, you have to use them. I remember Ben Burt came in at one point and he was like, oh, you have to use those sounds. And I was like. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the way you do, it does ground the, the fans. And, uh, totally. you know, and it also allows the new fans to accept the new reality too, because you did do an alternate universe. We did, but we, I mean, I think you have to stay true to certain things that are true to the story, and then you have to bring your own, you know, um, style to it. And I think that's what JJ's so incredibly successful at. I mean, if you just, you know, it's not shot like the TV show was shot. So the whole style and production design are very, very different. Um, yes, the bridge is the bridge, but you'd never see, the TV show is never shot in that kind of, you know, whippy, uh, sharp cuts. You know, occasionally the door would open and or shut, and then you'd cut somewhere. But um, it's very different. And, of course, the flares, which uh, JJ's <laughs> taken a lot of heat for over the years, were uh, an addition. He just went flare crazy. <laughs> uh, as, as a Trekkie fan, uh, I have to do the Enterprise introduction. Beautiful setup being built. And, of course, when Kirk sees the first time. What was your reaction when you saw that, uh, the first time seeing the Enterprise? Yeah, it's, it's so funny because it was re we. I remember seeing it, and I remember they were going to shoot it, or we. You know, obviously it's a lot of special effects, so there's not much there. When I get it, when I get it, it's just two guys looking at a green screen window, and um, I write a title that says it's the Enterprise, <laughs> you know, maybe or space station. As the camera tilts up, we see the you know majestic Enterprise. And um, I remember having this whole discussion with him about the original movie, the Robert Wise movie, right, mm -hmm. where they spent, I don't know, it seemed at the time like two and a half hours, I think it was probably, uh, you know, four minutes, three or four minutes, uh, reintroducing the Enterprise in that film. And I said, oh, Jay, you're not going to do that. I mean, if we, we can't do that, that was so hard. That was so boring. <laughs> he was like, I love that. <laughs> great. So I think we came up. I, I, feel, I really love the way he introduced the Enterprise in this. And I think the music, obviously, you know, brings you right into it. And it's really, it's kind of breathtaking. Even now I watch it and I think it's kind of great. Well, and a lot of, I mean, the, the fans remember, the, the Enterprise was the main character of the show. Yeah, for Like, sure. in the original series, is always about Kirk's relationship with it, and, you know. Um, let's talk a little, like, you talk a lot. We have, I mean, the opening, the, the, it, the you know, we call it called the Aquaman break. You got the Romulans, you know, Kirk and Sulu fighting that great fight scene. Spock having tried to lose his mother, save his mother. The fast-paced sequence. Again, how do you focus in that, when that kind of sequence, to bear down to some of the emotional elements? especially of like Spock and the mom and some of the stuff like that without letting the special effects kill it. Well, I mean, whenever I approach a scene, I'm always trying to, even fight scenes, and I try to approach emotionally and try to get shots that you can see what the character's looking at or before they throw a punch. Or, um, but obviously in a scene like Spock losing his mother, you know, that's really the performance. I mean, you know, um, Zachary nailed it, and um, you know these actors were just great. I mean, if I get if I, it's so important for me if I have an actor who's, you know, 
doing the right thing or I can find a performance in there, that's what I'll use to enhance anything. And then the special effects and the um, sound effects and the music all come kind of later for me. So I, I, I usually shape a scene around the emotional core of whatever that, obviously, whatever that scene is. Or, you know, sometimes it's around what the joke is or what the, it just depends on what the scene is trying to achieve. But, like, I always look at a scene and think, what, you know, how, what do I want out of it? And then later on I deal with what the director wanted <laughs> out of it. Well, of course, the big moment scene is Leonard Nimoy meeting... Uh, Lenny Moore, Spock meeting Kirk. Uh, it was also was it the way you the montage because that scene had a lot going on. How do you balance a sequence like that when you got exposition effects and the weight of Leonard Nimoy? You know, which was such. Oh, a you mean like in the ice tunnel scene? Yeah. Oh my God, that scene I remember was a big problematic scene because it had a lot of dialogue. I think we cut two thirds of the dialogue out of that scene. I mean, it just went on stories and. Remember when, and this is what your dad did, and um, I remember. And it's so funny when I see it now because you can't see. It's I I can't even remember what the dialogue was. I just remember there was so much dialogue, and the way it was blocked. Kirk was standing here, and Leonard Nimoy kept walking past him or beyond him. And I remember at one point I wanted to cut this chunk of dialogue out of that scene, and I had to. Um, but then I wanted to get to this line. And that it would have meant they were both looking the wrong way. <laughs> and um, so I flopped the shot. I flopped one of them. I can't remember who. Probably Leonard Nimoy. And I asked the visual effects people to put the door to the ice cave, move it from the right to the left, so he, could, <laughs> as he was going to crisscross, it looked like he walked out the door to end the scene. So you can, you know, if you're... If you get the core of the scene that you want right, some, you know, sometimes you can manipulate the picture to do... I mean, I do, I do that quite a lot now. I mean, it's easier now that visual effects are so easy to... Uh, you know, I can have my assistant move a door now, but, you know, 10 years ago it was a little more difficult. <laughs> it was also interesting from the pacing, from the editing standpoint, we just lost a whole planet. I mean, it was pretty intense. Blowing a Vulcan was a... I'm assuming a risky decision, or there was some agonizing. We had a lot of discussions about it. <laughs> uh, but you needed comic timing. So is that, did you see that in the edit room? We needed Scotty at that point, or maybe the Spock scene was too long. We need to get the Scotty so we can lighten the mood a little. Or Oh, you mean why we cut it yeah. down? And um, It just, you know, yeah, I mean, it just got bogged down. It didn't need to say so much. And also, you, it just depends on the film. But, I mean, sometimes... A lot, and especially when you're rewriting a film, if the script's not 100% ready when you go into shooting, which happens all the time these days, because um, these scripts are so massive and complicated, um, you will often get a lot more dialogue than you need. You know, a little goes a long way. And um, yeah, so we just had to get Scotty in the story. We had to get him back on board. I mean, I think the film is still two hours long, right? Two oh five. Yeah, I mean, it's not. Um, you know, I know Avengers was three fifteen <laughs> now, so. But I don't think we're that. Um, we really didn't want a over two hour movie. That was a big deal for us. I did. I don't. 
think it needed to be over two hours. And as someone knows the series, I have to say I love the homage to one of my favorite episodes of The Side of Paradise, where Kirk had to provoke Spock with emotion. Uh, but you talked a little about the fight scene, so let's talk, let's talk about that fight scene. Because you had reactions, the fight, mm-hmm. the drama. So what was that? how did you decide that, what, oh, we put Sula's reaction, or we want to keep it more on Kirk's face, or... Spocks. That fight was really done in big, a lot of big close-ups, and I partly that was, you know, that was a JJ choice uh, because um, I think, you know, it was very important that Kirk provoke him, and so you had to be inside it. It couldn't be one of those, you know, bar fight kind of things. It had to be, uh, you know, up close and personal. And um, I remember saying to him. We have to get this fight over pretty soon because Spock is, you know, could kill him because he's so much stronger than him anyway. And the fact is, if we go any longer, you're going to start to think, why isn't anyone on the crew Mm -hmm. stopping him? I mean, you've got Scotty, you've got Uhura, you've got, you know, Sulu and Chekhov. And one of them would have, or, and boom, I mean, they're all there and they don't... No one's stopping the fight, so we, it, I felt it had to be, and we both agreed it had to be contained before you started wondering why it was going on so long. Because they weren't in on it. They did, the rest right. of the crew didn't know. And it's interesting because if you think about it dramatically, the, the fight brought them together, actually. So you, if it went on too long, it would have been a little like, this is too much, and they might not have right. bonded. And, but you had to feel the tension. You had to feel that Spock was at least being driven to the edge, which I think... He's just, you know, Zach, again, Zachary just did such great performance of losing it without losing it, which I thought was so, so contained in that one, you know, profile where he's got him down on the console and he's, um, you can just see his face. He's like, I want to stop, but I can't stop because, you know, and it's, I mean, that just sells it. I mean, you, you know, why would you not be on his face for that? And theoretically, so this movie, but if you had, let's say, a, a cast, cast that wasn't as strong, hypothetically, mm-hmm. not asking you to say what movie, uh, is that more problematic where you, then you'd have to cut away from yeah, you know, the has, reactions, like try to mask a performance? Yeah, I do, you know, that happens all the time. I mean, the, it's crafting a performance is one of the things an editor does, you know, as a, I would think that's one of our main jobs. It, and of course, when you have an actor who's not speaking to you, it's much more difficult and you tend to, um, you, you know, there's a lot of tricks you can do, but a bad performance is a bad performance. So casting is a huge deal. And I think over the years, for sure, JJ's just been amazing at casting and then sometimes you you know you have an unbalanced cast you can have a cast that um one or two people are great and just one person isn't good and then that character becomes weaker and it's hard and then you have to figure out how to balance that but i would say with um star trek that you know they were very young cast and they um they really gelled. I mean, they just had great um, chemistry, all of them. And, um, you know, it makes me very sad to see Anton on the screen because he was just amazing. And uh, he's such a good actor. It's just so tragic about him. And um, 
but that cast, they loved each other. You could tell they liked each other. You watch the gag reel, they're, you know, they're just really bonded, and it, you feel it. So then theoretically, like, so you like when the cast actually communicates with you and says, hey, how's it going, or kind of a collaboration. <laughs> well, I always find it really funny with the cast because, um, you know, obviously I know them so well and they don't know me at all. And so when I go on the set and I'm like, oh, I know everything about you, but, you know, you know nothing about me. And, you know, I always, um, uh, on, it was funny, on, on Star Wars, Daisy, got, Daisy Ridley got to know me really well, and she's like, I know you're going to say it. <laughs> so I was like, you're very smart. <laughs> but um, I did this thing on, I'm cutting Star Wars, um, it's got, uh, The Rise of, of Skywalker, and um, I, we have a very short schedule because we, like when we did Force Awakens, we started in May and we finished shooting in October. We didn't, and we were out in Christmas. And this film, we didn't start shooting till August, and so we weren't done until February shooting. And so we have like six, four, five, six months less time, and it's a very big film. So I convinced J.J. to let me cut on the set. Hmm. And um, he was like, no, we never do that. No. And I was like, just you know, try it, because I had to start turning over shots and things. So I was um, on the set the entire time. <laughs> and he got so used to it, he was like, no, you need to be less than 10 feet away from me at all times. So if the camera would move 10 feet, my whole, I moved 10 feet. <laughs> and I mean, I was everywhere. I was in, outside in a water tank. And um, there was, a, it was this great moment where I'm sitting there cutting, and I'm in the headphones, and I'm cutting. And um, my assistant's walking towards me, and she's laughing, laughing, laughing. And she goes, turn around, turn around. I turn around, and... Kylo Ren in full mask and cape is sitting on an apple box just over me like this. <laughs> He's like, do you mind if I watch? <laughs> and uh, so on this film, I got to know the cast really well. I was literally part of the crew. So, and, you know, I got to know the gaffers and obviously I know the DP, but I got to know the whole crew and it was really great for me. It was really great to see. I would be watching what they were shooting. I was cutting what they shot the day before. I had the DP right there to ask questions. He could ask me questions. If I needed a shot or JJ and I decided we'd need another shot, we would literally set up in a corner and do some green screen shot of something. And it just, um, getting to know the cast and having them be comfortable with me, um, it was it was it was a really great way to understand know what they were going for and and without even having a big discussion about it. So um, I'm a big fan of you know I always love my wh- whoever's in the film because I that's my process. I like fall in love with them. So I can when I cut them, I everything is about you know the best of them. And conversely, I mean the cast must love it because then they can turn to you. Like I said, a Kyle Adam Driver can turn to you and say, oh my God, like, was, and know, oh, you're part of the crew. I can ask you what you think, or you know, take a note from. Well, he was very life. funny. If he, if he was ever, if I ever had anything up of him on the screen, he go, oh, no, I don't see that. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. So, we'll, we'll we'll talk about the end of Star Trek. We have the you know the big, of course, the big battle again. Mm-hmm. Kirk and Kirk and the uh, my favorite moment when the Enterprise appears to save the day. Uh, was that, did that sequence, was that longer? Did you have to cut it down? Or did you find that it took a while to come up with the end sequence? Everything's long. 
<laughs> Everything's longer than you think. That I mean, every cut, it, you know, your first cut is usually 45 minutes to an hour too long. And, you know, um, trying to remember if there were other scenes we cut. I can't remember now if there were scenes we might have lost or... Um, there's a lot going on in that ending. It took a long time to get the right moments. And and even when I see it now, I am reminded, like at the time, we thought we didn't even have enough shots. We were like, oh, we don't really have a good shot where Nero dies. But then I'm watching it and I'm going, it's fine. <laughs> but you're so in it, you know, and you think you need everything. Um, yeah, it was hard. It was hard to balance. It was hard to figure out how many cracks the ship could take before it was going to... You know, you're like, oh, the windshield cracked. They should be dead. Just <laughs> 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 stuff like that. I remember at one point when we started um, Star Trek, it was really funny. JJ had this idea. He was like, so there's going to be no sound in space. No sound in space because we're just going to go real. And I was like, sure. <laughs> and then, you know, we put sound in space. <laughs> But there's a couple of moments. There's a great moment where in the very opening battle, this woman's running down a hall, and then she gets sucked out of the... And that was a big stunt. I remember at the time, even Roger Guyette, our uh, visual effects supervisor, was like, oh, I don't know how I'm going to do this. You know, it's like, I gotta make... First she's real, then she becomes a digi-double, then she's got to hit a bit of the ship and then fly over it, and then it goes some loud sound, and as she gets sucked out, just at the right moment, you pull the sound out, and then you just have wind, but there's no wind in space, so it has to be like echoey, weird, not wind-wind. And, um, you know, it's just, it's so nice to see that... So we did sort of pay mind to, like, we implied, or as Spock says, inferred that there's no sound in space. Well, it's actually good because sometimes the special effects movies go, they just drill the sound, they go loud all the time. I like that J.J. New and the team wanted silence. Even like you said, the opening with George. Mm-hmm. Cut the sound out and just have the music and mm-hmm. watching Kirk, you know, sacrifice. So let's go back to your early days. What, um, when did you know you wanted to be an editor? Oh, I don't know. Um, I I never really set out to be an editor. I never really... I grew up loving film. I watched films all the time when I was a kid. I didn't know anyone in the film business. I grew up in Queens, New York. I went to... When I went to university in New York, um, I got... I took a lot of design classes and science classes, weirdly. And um, science fiction kind of fan. And uh, I, my design teacher at the time recruited me into this sort of movie film uh, society because we didn't really have any, there were no film classes at Stony Brook University in those years. So there was like six guys and me and we made these little films that would go on to be the shorts before the student union, whatever film they'd show on Friday or Saturday night. And uh, I was the girl in every film. And um, <laughs> my design teacher actually approached me and he recruited me. He got me an offer to go to NYU Film School for graduate school. And I went to go meet at the time and they were, wanted women. Um, and I got offered a full ride there. So it was a choice between like, hey, you're going to go home and live with your parents in Queens or you're going to go to film school in New York. And I was like, hmm. I guess I'll go to film school. 
<laughs> and literally, we were just thrown out into the streets, like, here's a camera, <laughs> come back with a film. And uh, uh, we did. We, I, there were a lot of uh, interesting people in my class and the classes around me. And um, I ended up having to finish, to get my degree, I had to finish my own film. And I found myself making a deal at, in a, with a company called Sound One at the time, where all the, any film made in New York was cut there. And uh, the, I, they traded me like a little closet room with a moviola for, I would code film and work for them. And uh, I hated being in a room with my film. I really, I was like, ah, oh, editing is the worst job ever. <laughs> Why can't I just go back on the streets again of New York and be shooting? But, you know, I ended up getting a job, uh, being offered a job because there were just people around doing films. And I got onto this Francis Coppola film called Cotton Club. And... Um, I just really enjoyed it. I just really enjoyed telling a story, and I realized, you know, I didn't really, uh, you know, once I, ha once I became an editor, and I worked for some really lovely, very smart people who were real mentors to me, um, and I realized how much incredible influence you have over film as an editor, and I know it's not widely publicized because, of course, we're behind the scenes, but... Um, you know, we do a lot of, or I have, and I know a lot of my people I work with, other editors that are friends of mine, you know, you do a lot of rewriting, you do a lot of, like, shaping and figuring out story, and um, it's really, you ha uh, it's really fun. So, I stayed. <laughs> and how did you uh, start your working relations with J.J. Abrams? <laughs> um, well... I was doing smaller features. I had um, just had my second kid, and um, I was at a point where the school that my son was going to was saying to me, uh, you can't take your child out of school for another six months to go on location, because if you do, we're just, you know, not going to, you know, he's, A, you're going to be hurting your child, and, you know, and I would be, and we're not going to offer you a place, and I realized it was getting harder and harder to travel with two kids, a dog and a nanny, and my nanny's kid. And um, so I, a friend of mine offered me Alias and mm -hmm. said, you'll love JJ, you know, just meet him. And I was like, oh, I don't want to do television. It's so much work and, you know, less money. And she's like, it's right here. It's going to be at Disney around, you know, which was very near where I lived at the time. And um, I said, okay, I'll meet him. I'm not taking the job. <laughs> and I sat down with him to meet him, and I laughed for an hour. I, I don't think I said a word. I think he just made me laugh the entire time. And I thought, oh, this guy's never going to hire me. He thinks I'm an idiot. And uh, he said, okay, I'll see you Monday. And that was it. <laughs> and so I was on Alias. And when I got to Alias, there were two other editors, both women. It was a great cutting room, really, like, efficient and just funny and fun and um, um, it was the most complicated sh film show I've ever been on trying to figure out every week what the script was about and it just became this incredibly fun project and it, especially for an editor because you were you know we were making up 
things as we went along and using special effects and JJ was so open to it and the writers were so open to it and I used to go into him and say you know we I need a scene between where you know so and so gets the bomb and stabbed and he'd say oh just uh, there'll be a crew in the parking lot uh, you know at Disney just go shoot it on the fourth floor and I'd be like but I'm cutting it just go shoot it and then you can cut it so it was like I felt like it was like this freedom like I had in film school where you just like shot it and then put it together and then went out and shot. And it was just, it was so much fun. And it was, it was a lot of formative years of, uh, of that. And it was intense, but it was great. I was very lucky to meet him. And, uh, you know, you, we talked a little bit, you started, you know, back when film was a little more prevalent, but now we switched to digital. How is that as an editor you know, the whole digital switch affected you as an editor? Well, it hasn't affected me, like, physically, because um, obviously I started cutting on a moviola where we just had film, and a lot less film was shot, unless you were Francis Coppola, in which case you shot as much film as there was made in the world. And, um, but, uh, which is a whole other thing. <laughs> um, but um, it... You know, because I cut on an Avid, the only way, the way it affected us was that it was, um, there was more being shot. But J.J. always shot on film. Hmm. He shot, he, even Alias was shot on film. And then, um, I'm not sure about his other TV shows, but every film he's ever done has been on film. And does, but even generally, does digital create so digital creates a lot more takes for you and a lot more footage to sift through, where in the old days, film, they were more economical. I think so, but, you know, again, um, you know, you can still run three cameras and you can, or as many as you want, and that generates a lot of film, uh, and that's a lot to go through. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. I just think the style of making films now, you tend... One tends to shoot more film because, yes, you know, if you're on, if you're digital, you just roll and roll and roll. Um, yes, but if you're J.J. Abrams or Chris Nolan, nobody's going to tell you not to keep loading the camera. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to shoot a lot of film as well. Uh, I mentioned in the opening we have a lot of, uh, we're losing a lot of students to graduation. Uh, Congratulations. Yeah. And all we have women through, like right now, behind camera. Uh, do you have any advice to any of the students breaking into the industry today, especially the women, you know, trying to break into production, which sadly is still a little male-dominated? It is, but we're making headway. I think we're doing, you know, I think it's um, a bigger, open, more, an op open, more open place. Uh, I think it's like any field. You obviously have to meet as many people as you can meet, and try to show your work and keep work doing your projects and talking to people and sending it out there. Um, I mean, for me, I think part of it was that I, I never, you know, it was just something I was going to do. Like, mm. I didn't... There were, yes, there were jobs I was like, ah, oh, I wish I get this job, I wish I get this job. And if I didn't, sure, I was really super disappointed or worried about decisions I were, was making. And because I work freelance, it's always a little bit of a, you know, oh my God, where's my next job coming from? And what if I never work again kind of thing? 
and how do I balance, you know, when I end this one, when I start another one, but I think, um, you know, if you're a hard worker and you can get along with people and you genuinely love what you do, it shows. Whenever I hire a crew, I, you know, for me, I always look for somebody who just is genuinely there and has, you know, they're talking to me like they, you know, read the script and know what they're talking about and can anticipate anything that's going to happen on the film and, you know, that kind of quick, uh, minded uh, interest in film. And I, I think that's true of any craft. I mean, I don't know if anything's specific to women. I, you know, I think you just have to exude confidence whether you have it or not. Then you go home and <laughs> pass out. <laughs> All right, so we have a time for a couple of questions from the audience, and we'll run a mic to you. Uh, hi. Hi. So my name is also Zachary, and I actually named myself after Zachary Quinto. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so I know you have a long-time collaboration with Mary Jo, and you have a lot of solo projects as well, so I just wanted to know what sort of different mindset did you bring to the project when you are collaborating and doing solo work? Um, well, I, Mary Jo and I, JJ sort of put us together. We don't really, we only work together on his projects and then we all have our own independent projects that we've worked on and um she's not doing she's decided not to do this star wars with me so she's pursue she wants to do um a different kind of film and um so we worked a certain way together where we talked about the film a lot but we she cut her scenes and i did my scenes and then we would collaborate on uh, the, the film as a whole. Uh, when I, other people I've worked with, I work differently with. For for me, I'm very. I like a big collaboration. So if I have a co-editor on it, any, like at Venom, I had a co-editor, and um, I like to just talk a lot, like mix it up, and you know, trade off scenes and see what they do with certain scenes and I like to go over the scenes that they cut and see if I can come and because the avid you can keep everything and as long as you can remember where you kept it <laughs> um, it really lends itself to pulling out the best and um, and you know sometimes we clash on that and ultimately J.J. will decide what he wants or, you know, the film will decide what it needs to be. I think that's what usually happens. Thank you so much for being here. Sure. I have to ask about the time travel paradox. Okay, <laughs> I'm really good at this. <laughs> I, I, I'd like to know about the decision making, I mean editing and otherwise, to just like go with it. Just have the older Spock and the younger Spock in the same timeline and not trying to, I mean, what was your decision making about how you were going to explain it or not explain it or just go with it? You know, it's really funny because that scene, that end scene was in and out, in and out, in and out, because for the same reason, we had so many, you know, we had so many in-house discussions about like, but people are going to, it's going to blow their mind. I mean, they can't see each other because then what are they going to say? And 
So um, I think we actually reshot Leonard Nimoy saying those lines about, um, you know, I let him infer the thing that everyone thinks because that's what everyone thinks. And then JJ, of course, with his sense of humor was like, not necessarily. Like, it doesn't necessarily happen that the worlds will explode if you meet each other. And then I think cleverly the writers were really good about saying, you know, putting in, they took ownership of it and they put in those lines about, look, look, you have the luxury of being in two places at once. So I'm going to do this thing that's going to have nothing to do with what you do. And there, I think there's two or three times in the film it's referenced that the, you know, they did by coming back they changed what would, was going to be. And I guess it's just kind of food for thought. <laughs> Hi, my name is Sarah. I'm a third year student here, and I'm really getting interested in editing. And I am such a hands-on person when it comes to that. It's, it's so hard to keep your mind in every different place, especially when you have so many people working on just special effects. So my question for you is, how how do you keep a hand on everything while you're trying to manage the editing over so many people? Hmm. How do I keep a hand on everything? Well, um, because, you know, I, well, obviously the director also has a, has a hand on everything or I feed them the information that they have a hand on. Um, I think because I generate it, right? So if I cut a scene and I know what I need, how I'm seeing it, and once I go through it with JJ or whoever, whomever I'm working with, um, I, and also a lot of these special effects are obviously planned out well in advance, right? You've got previs and you start with that, which is a you know, computer-generated storyboard, but has action in it. So you just keep honing it down. Like you just go, well, I want it to be this. And then you talk to the visual effects supervisor and that's, and once I give the note to them, I'm hoping that they give, they take it from there. And I have a visual effects editor, or sometimes I have two visual effects editors and I give the notes to them and I say, can you make sure this happens? And, you know, so I do a lot of like, um, delegating like I'll it'll come from me but I'll delegate it out and wait for it to come back and then you know like a month later I'm like hey where's that shot I asked for you know and then I'll realize you know when I go back so I keep going through the film over and over and eventually I'll fill in the holes all right well we kind of always end our show with our same question uh-oh. <laughs> uh, no, so looking back, you maybe a childhood movie experience or anything, is there any film you think that maybe inspired you or something that you should recommend students that they should study if they want to learn editing or something like this is a master and this is, would be a great thing to study? Sometimes I think of something like Bonnie and Clyde because I know that, I mean, Dee Dee Allen was somebody I actually knew quite well and she had an amazing ability to, like, tell a story without linearly and then also literally telling it not linearly in the same film, which I always thought was so interesting. And she had this crazy mind, you know, she just remembered 
tiny facts about you and then broad facts and then, you know, the next, then she wouldn't even remember your name, but she'd know everything about you. And I thought that was fascinating. And so I, I, I think anything she's ever cut has been so um, masterfully done. And it's hard to say, like, if I look back on, and, and, you know, recommend um, an older film editing has changed so much over the years and now there's so many shortcuts that people use to to and visual effects that people use to change things i mean i literally can now change what people say on the screen if i don't have them saying the right line or i want them to say a different line i can sometimes get visual effects to do that so i'm I'm loath to say go out and watch, you know, something that's wasn't cut in the last two years because, um, and yet, you know, you can watch something like Princess Bride, which is like the perfect story that I could watch a hundred times over and over and, you know, never want it to be faster or slower or, you know, it's just perfect <laughs> so i would say princess bride <laughs> so you're uh, one of my all-time favorites well this wraps up our, our season and you are the first guest to do two finales you oh. did force awakens three years ago and star trek this so thank you so much for joining us and sharing you're your really insights welcome. into thanks perfect. for having me all right i'll see you on episode nine <laughs> <laughs> thank you You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.